Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rebencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Last week, we reported on a 21st century version of Smokey Bear with the rescue of a badly burned mountain lion cub from the Zog Fire near Whiskeytown National Recreation Area in California. We also brought you news of a new visitor center coming to Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument in Montana, the reopening of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. for public tours, as well as the reopening of the Emerald Pools Trail Network at Zion National Park in Utah. And we told you about the arrival of Fat Bear Week 2020 at Katmai National Park and Preserve. You can find those and other stories about parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. For this week's show, we reached out to Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association and Sheridan Steele from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks to discuss the past month's news and events surrounding national parks. Curious about how things stand with the Great American Outdoors Act and the Land and Water Conservation Fund? We'll dive into those topics right after this break. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The national park system doesn't pause for the upcoming presidential election. Throughout this summer, it's been surprisingly busy, especially in light of the coronavirus pandemic at many units of the park system. Indeed, there have been as many issues and events across the parks to pay attention to and discuss. To help us with that task, we've invited Kristen Bringle, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, and Sheridan Steele, who spent nearly four decades with the National Park Service until 2015 when he retired. He now sits on the executive board of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. Welcome to The Traveler, folks. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for having us. Let's start with the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, It was passed earlier this summer, signed into law by President Trump, and the administration has until November 5th, give or take a day, uh, to present Congress with a priority list for the first $1.3 billion of funding provided the Park Service through the Great American Outdoors Act for attacking the maintenance backlog. Any idea how the decision-making is going in drawing up that list? It's a great question. The Interior Secretary did put out a memorandum where he sort of anointed a couple of political appointees to review the list and come up with some criteria. I think the concern is that no career staff are on that sort of advisory, in that advisory role. But even so, they are expected to produce this list with the career staff. 
And what we've heard about the list is that we should expect most of the projects to be more than $20 million. And every project has to have a plan associated with it. So it it has to already have a sort of design element to it or, or a plan for how they're going to re, uh, restore something or reconstruct something. And so that's, that's written into the law. So we, we know that um, the project list that we should see should actually resemble what we know has already been planned for. Yeah, I would add, <clears throat> go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say Sheridan, what's the coalition heard? Well, um, with over $12 billion worth of projects in the backlog, it's going to be really easy to come up with a list. Uh, I think the hardest part will be developing the priorities, although every park unit, I'm sure, has their own list and prioritize. So it should be relatively easy to come up with the first year's needs because um, they're so great. At the same time, um, you know, Kristen, you hinted at it. Do they have to be shovel-ready? I mean, having a, a plan on, on one hand is um, is nice to have a plan, but to, to implement that plan, it could take uh, quite a while, couldn't it? Right. So, and, and some of these projects are going to be multi-year projects, obviously. Um, you're not going to finish putting in place a new water pipeline on the south rim of the Grand Canyon in one year. And so... You know, you have to work, and Sheridan can talk about this by the season, depending on what park you have and what kind of weather changes you have. So we're, we're looking at multi-year projects in a lot of cases anyway. But shovel-ready is a term, unfortunately, that should not be associated with this bill. Um, if there are historic sites or particular parks that really need the deferred maintenance money, <clears throat> The Park Service should take the time to get a plan in place now so that in the future years of spending the money, they can they can work on those projects. So I know a lot of folks have been saying in the media that, you know, only the shovel-ready projects are going to get done, and we hope that's not the case. We hope that, you know, if there's a building at Harper's Ferry that's falling apart, that that building, you know, gets fixed, even if it's not shovel-ready right now. But it, it gets planned for so it can get fixed later down the road. Sheridan, um, you you were a superintendent at more than a few parks, and so you know about planning and you know about implementing um, plans. How big of a challenge will it be? I think it'll be very significant because of the need for adequate staff to do that kind of work, to be do the preparation, do the planning, do the design work. So architects, historical architects, engineers are all going to be needed to um, make those projects a reality. And um, I don't think the National Park Service has adequate staffing to take on projects of this magnitude uh, very easily. Major parks like Rocky Mountain and Acadia, where I've worked, they have an engineer and usually uh, some support staff. But um, smaller parks depend on the regional offices, and they also all depend on hiring a&E firms, consultants, to do some of that detailed work. So I think that's going to be a big part of the challenge. And, of course, as you go along that planning and start implementing the plans, you could run into a few surprises. Um, I think uh, at Death Valley National Park with the um, restoration, rehabilitation of Scotty's Castle, which was hit hard by thunderstorms some years back, um, 
the question um, rose up: Do we do we just rebuild to the, the state it was in at the time the storm hit, or do we rebuild to the uh, the state of current technology and um, codes and whatnot? So you can run into some surprises, no? Absolutely, and with historic yeah. structures, that's particularly true because you know you're you're rebuilding or repairing to a different standard than you would be a modern building. You obviously have to take into account the historic nature of the building historic fabric and how it was built and try to duplicate that as much as you can. Kristen? I was going to say I was just out there last year looking at the the damage and, and the damage that happened more recently. And you have all sorts of issues where you have to move lots of dirt out there as well and, and make sure that you're channeling stuff for flooding and, and other weather events. And so whatever we want the park service to bring all of these sites to where they need to be physically to not only represent the historical preservation aspects of it, but also make sure that they prevent for future damage. And so, and I think Death Valley is really, you know, the folks out there are really thinking about how they make sure that uh, Scotty's Castle is taken care of, you know, well into the future. So, and that's what we want the parks to do, which is why the way the bill is written, you can use some of the money to take care of other attributes that need to be taken care of, other assets um, as part of the deferred maintenance money if it means fixing the deferred maintenance issue. And so that's the good part about the way the bill was written is that it still has to be tied to the original deferred maintenance issue, but you can do some additional work to to really bring the, the site um, up to code like you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, would you both say that the Grand Canyon National Park's water woes should top the list? I mean, the the Trans Canyon uh, pipeline long has been in need of um, extensive repair or replacement. Um, it's a leaky situation there. Uh, the failure of a pump on the North Rim this past week has created issues for hikers on the North Kaibab Trail. And earlier this summer, other issues with the, the pipeline led to conservation measures on the South Rim. That seems to be the no, new normal. So is the pipeline at the top of the list? It better be. <laughs> We've been well, talking about that for a really long time. Yeah, I agree with that. But uh, I think um, there are probably many other projects that are, are of equal urgency in terms of public health and safety. I remember many years ago when Crater Lake had to close because a broken sewage line got into the water supply and uh, made a lot of people sick, and they closed the park for a majority of that season. And uh, But that's just an example of the kind of thing that can happen when maintenance needs are delayed too long. And I think a lot of parks have good examples of things that must be addressed as soon as possible. Absolutely. And that, that raises my next question. Um, Kristen, you mentioned that uh, I believe uh, projects $20 million or more price tags um, might get uh, um, the greatest attention. Are there any concerns that the biggest parks, the Yellowstones, the Yosemites, the Grand Canyons, will get the most attention for that funding? Well, this is a question that came up all the time when we were lobbying on the bill. The oldest parks have the most problems. That is a fact. And so you are going to see money go to some of the bigger parks because they're the oldest ones. So Yellowstone needs to repair the road. Grand Canyon needs to repair the water pipeline. There are issues at Yosemite that need to be taken care of. 
So you are going to see that, but it's because the newer parks that have been added to the system in the last 30 or so years have far fewer problems than the ones that were added 100 years ago. And I would add to that, Kurt, that um, I agree with Kristen. Certainly the older parks have the greatest needs. Acadia is a good example. It's over 100 years old as a national park. And um, it's got some serious issues in the maintenance facilities, in the headquarters, in the visitor center. Uh, these facilities were built for a very different time and a very different level of visitation. The visitor center, for instance, was built in the 60s, I believe, probably to handle a thousand people a day. And it's handling many more than that now, uh, many times that number. And it's just not able to do that in a safe and effective way. And it needs attention. So those are good examples of things that have been on the list for many, many years. And finally, uh, there's going to be a way to uh, address those needs. But at the same time, I, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it roughly um, maybe one quarter of the 421 units in the national park system charge entrance fees? And so, the, you know, the Yellowstones, the Acadias, um, the Yosemites have at least entrance fee revenues that they can help. I mean, certainly it's not going to pay for a $20 million project, but it's, it's money that uh, a lot of the smaller units don't have. Is that a problem? The fee collection only goes so far yeah, and you spend it on other things besides maintenance you spend it on programs and, and other things and so I think when people think about the fee collection they think the amount that the park service is getting is is more than what they actually get but you're right that Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and Acadia benefit greatly from fees but it doesn't actually cover some of these really expensive items whether it's bridge repair water you know sewage repair these things are huge costs and um, they're just, the fees need to be spread out a little bit more than just on maintenance issues. I would agree with that. The, um, the entrance fees have been extremely important to the major parks or the larger parks, and I'm sure some of the smaller parks too, but it's really only a small uh, amount of the total picture. What about the Land and Water Conservation Fund? Um, any expectation to see some of that money spent on land acquisitions for the park system in the coming years? Hey, before we turn to that, Hopefully. Kirk, can I say something else? Sure. Uh, about the Great America Outdoors Act. That's a wonderful thing, and it's, it's such an extremely uh, success or, or a victory for the national parks getting that passed. But one point I wanted to make was Repairing and building new facilities, if you don't have the money to operate those facilities or enough money to operate those facilities, you're going to be right back in the same situation again in a, in a number of years. Uh, so buildings naturally deteriorate. So, do, so does infrastructure of all kinds. And the national parks have not had adequate money to fund routine maintenance even over mm -hmm. the years. And so Park operational funding is a very important part of the overall picture. No, and to your point, um, some have told me that um, the Great American Outdoors Act is not a panacea for the, the problems that face the Park Service in terms of deferred maintenance. And, uh, you know, while $1.3 billion is a, a nice chunk of money to uh, help address some of those problems, um, let's not forget that um, the deferred maintenance bill grows at the same time. It, it's not put on hold. That's right. Yep. 
Kristen, Land and Water Conservation Fund, um, any land acquisitions we're going to see in the near future? Well, what happens every year is the administration usually puts together a list of LWCF projects that they on in that inside national parks that they need funding for. And that list was submitted to Congress and there are a host of parks that need money for inholdings. Um, I think we still have not heard back from the park service yet, if they are going to make that list larger Hmm. for the first installment of this uh, money that's coming in. So for those who aren't familiar with park service budgeting Mm -hmm. and, and federal appropriations process, you know, Congress ultimately ends up funding LWCF and has over the years um, and hasn't provided the full $900 million per year. The Great American Outdoors Act now requires LWCF to get $900 million a year in mandatory funding, which is amazing. So we're basically almost doubling the amount that the Park Service got potentially last year. Now, a lot of promises were made when the bill was passing and the federal side of the LWCF money is shared among a host of agencies like Forest Service, BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service. So what we're waiting to see, Kurt, is whether or not Interior Secretary Bernhardt is going to spend you know, more money on park in holdings or if he's going to try to spread it out to other agencies. Um, so we'll, it's, it's, we haven't heard either way yet, so we're we're just waiting to to find out. Sheridan, that's got to be a concern of the coalition, right? Absolutely. Uh, I don't think you can overstate the importance of the Land and Water Conservation Fund to the national parks, because it's all about protecting the land inside the park boundaries. And uh, many people don't know that many of the large national parks, or in fact, many parks all over the country have what I would call holes in them. Uh, The technical term is inholding, but it's land inside the boundary. It's privately owned. It was supposed to be acquired as part of the park and has not for one reason or another. So those, I I talked a lot about filling in the holes in the national parks and um, buying land is really so critical to the mission of the national parks because without owning that land or controlling it, we have no way of protecting the natural and cultural resources that we are charged to protect. So it's extremely important program. Yeah, I know um, Big Bend National Park earlier this summer, I guess uh, Will Hurd, um, congressman from Texas, introduced legislation to allow them to acquire roughly 6,100 acres of, of inholdings. Um, and we'll, we'll see if that comes to be. We're talking today with Christian. I don't Christian. know whether or not they are, they are going to need an exorbitant amount of LWCF funds to um, pay for that uh, boundary adjustment at Big Ben. I actually think the appraisal is coming back more reasonable there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think easily that that particular boundary <clears throat> adjustment could, should make the make a list, even though it's sort of a newer proposal that's on the table. But that would be exactly the kind of park that could benefit if the Interior Secretary decided to spend more money on on parks under LWCF. I do know the the Big Bend Conservancy uh, has been working hard at raising money. So yeah, I mean what the 
um, appraisal comes in at and, and how much money um, the conservancy can raise um, certainly will both go a long ways to determining how much money, if any, the Park Service needs to acquire those lands. We've been talking today with Kristen Brengel, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, and Sheridan Steele, a veteran of the National Park Service for almost 40 years. He now sits on the Executive Council of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. All right, we're back with Christian Brengo from NPCA and Sheridan Steele from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. The coronavirus pandemic has led to a surge in outdoor use, in part by many folks who might previously hadn't thought much about national parks as great vacation destinations. Are you concerned that this heightened interest in public lands will lead to pressure to allow new uses, uh, such as e-bikes, or pushes for more campgrounds or lodging in the parks or more pay-to-play businesses? Well, I... Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Sheridan. (laughs) Well, I was going to say that um, visitation has been increasing anyway over the years, uh, so it's always an issue or a challenge to deal with more visitors at any national park with um, sometimes less resources in terms of staff and budget to do that. So um, I think this is just exacerbating that issue a little bit, and uh, certainly I see the big increase in outdoor use, and in many ways that's a good thing. Yeah, you might remember that um, about a year or so ago, there was a report that came out from um, a sort of recreation advisory group that's since been disbanded where they wanted to increase campgrounds and parks. And I think it kind of gets back to the issue that Sheridan was talking talking about earlier, which is you're adding amenities, but you're not adding park service staff. And so you know, you really need to make sure that you're, especially when something is so interactive with visitors, that you're considering that as part of the equation. But we're always on the lookout for these attempts to 
privatized parks or for companies to try to come up with solutions here. I think what we're learning under this COVID time and this sort of increase in park visitation is that um, what I'd love to see is is some sort of a um, study or a clear look at how the parks that tried timed entry systems over the summer, how that worked, and whether or not having these sort of reservation slash timed entry systems will improve people's experiences in the park, make sure we're protecting resources adequately. But um, but I think uh, we need to take a look at sort of the volume of visitors that are coming in and uh, whether or not we're adequately protecting resources and giving people the experience they deserve when they go into parks. So, so I'd love to see more, more look at that. Yeah. I think that uh, um, the growing issue of increasing visitation is going to require a lot of creative thinking because on one hand, there is this approach of reservation to uh, a reservation or reserve time to enter the park. And um, I think that has potential to succeed, but it also has potential to fail. And um, I want to see people enjoying their national parks, but I want to see them have a quality experience and I want to see the resources protected for future generations. So those are kind of forces that are, are running into each other as you try to manage for the future of the national parks. And in some regards, they're, they're competing interests. Yes, absolutely. What is a quality experience in a park to, to one person can, can differ by a large range from another person's view of that. Yeah, so at Acadia National Park, uh, we often had gridlock on top of Cadillac Mountain where there's so many cars and buses that nobody could move. And that's not a quality experience. Uh, so we've got to find ways of addressing those issues, those crowding issues and traffic issues in such a way that uh, people feel like they're having a good experience while we're still uh, providing for managing the park resources in the best possible way. I know at uh, Rocky Mountain where they've got a, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a reservation system or a timed entry system, um, they're still filling up really early in the morning, um, usually by nine o'clock or so the, the Bear Lake parking lot is is full and uh, they, they close off access to that. Glacier National Park, which hasn't used any sort of reservation system or entrance system this summer of COVID, they're seeing a lot of their facilities fill up early in the day. And I'm sure that's the case in many places. Arches National Park, um, they're frequently closing the entrance road uh, in the morning um, because so many people show up so quickly. And it it begs the question of of do we need to come up with a, a reservation to protect these places or do we allow them to be overcome? And, and yes, the, the, the staffing situation with the, the parks is at, at risk as well as the natural resources. You know, Kurt, yeah, I have a good... tricky because... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I have an example of, of this reservation thing that has worked really well. So at Acadia National Park, they have two major campgrounds. One of them for years was first come, first serve. And over my time there at Acadia, the numbers of people going to that campground, Seawall Campground, started going down. And uh, while the other campground was always 100% reserved for the primary season. So we 
implemented a reservation system for half of the seawall campground just to see what would happen. And that filled immediately. And then, so we put the entire campground under reservations and it filled immediately. So what that told us was that a lot of people are expecting to have reservations to go to places and they, they understand the system of making reservations and um, that actually helps them better plan for their visit. So I think there are advantages, definite advantages to a reservation system. Oh, I would agree. There are, there are some campgrounds that are, are so far off the beaten path that, you know, you're afraid to show up if you don't have a reservation. And the, the, the Needles Campground in Canyonlands National Park is one area, and it's uh, only got 26 sites, I believe. And, you know, you've got to book it six months in advance, and you're lucky if you can do that. Yes, I agree. But it's better than driving five or six hours and showing up and finding all the campground full. Yeah, and I think people yeah, I are think, expecting that. Yeah, it, it's it's a tricky situation because, you know, you, you talked about arches. You know, there's a, a road system and it takes you to specific places and parking areas. And so the park does sort of fill up with cars and people at a certain point. At Glacier, where they were thinking about doing some timed entry this summer, they pulled it back because one of the issues they were having was when they filled up, they couldn't get the cars to turn around at the entrance. They were having issues with the cars exiting because they couldn't get into the park. And so every park has sort of a unique road system, a unique infrastructure. And, you know, you just can't continue to let people go in because it, it literally will fill up. I think in Rocky, you know, having this reservation system over the summer and then allowing for about, I think, a 10%, uh, about 10% of the entries were allowed to come in day of without a reservation to accommodate for, you know, turning people away, you know, and, and, and making sure they're not just turning people away. But, but I, uh, everything we keep hearing from, from Rocky from the summer is that things went well. And I have personally had two bad situations at Bear Lake where my husband and I couldn't find parking. So, you know, it, it is an issue when you get there. But, um, but you know, maybe this timed entry system from this summer is going to teach us a little bit more about how people move through Rocky and, and how to accommodate for, for all the visitation. I think one of the big challenges related to uh, – uh, this issue of crowding is bus service within the national parks, particularly with the COVID pandemic. You know, the, the buses can't operate with social distancing and all those other kinds of things uh, without vastly reducing the capacity of the system to handle the number of visitors. Yeah, and definitely one size does not fit all. I mean, you look at Yellowstone National Park, which has uh, – five possible entrances if you count the, the northeast road and so trying to clock how many people are entering the park at any one time can can certainly be a challenge in some areas are going to fill up more than others such as uh, um, you know the old faithful complex will, will fill up greater uh, more quickly than say uh, the lamar valley yeah in the winter time you know most people come through the west entrance of, of yellowstone and so People are taking snow coaches in and snow coaches back out or, or staying in Old Faithful at the snow lodge overnight. So it does depend on the season in some cases. But from what I understand, the summer Zion 
had tickets for the shuttles. Mm-hmm. So people, they had a sort of a cap of how many people could be on the shuttle to safely socially distance, but they still had to have a cap on the shuttle, even though they were trying to, you know, make sure that there weren't too many cars coming into the park. So I think the parks need to experiment. They need to figure out if shuttles will work in certain areas. They need to look at, you know, per vehicle timed entry, things like this. I think if we want to allow, you know, folks to come in to parks at high volumes into the future, we have to really be creative here and experiment a little bit more. Well, I'm curious to that point. Um, have either of you with your, your close park contacts heard, um, is there going to be a new approach to visiting national parks once we clear the COVID crisis? I know um, some some concessionaires, there was one at uh, Yosemite, I believe, where um, they bus people, um, I guess, on tours through the park. And uh, they were thinking about buying a, you know, a 60 or 70 passenger bus. But instead, they, they went with uh, two smaller buses because they figure in the years to come, you know, you're going to have groups that want to travel by themselves and, and not possibly be exposed to other other visitors, as it were. Yeah, I think it depends on how long uh, this pandemic or the restrictions go, because that that is really a huge problem at parks like Acadia. Again, uh, their bus system served literally hundreds of thousands of people a summer. And one bus would have 40 people seated, 20 people standing. So that's 60 passengers. And they would often have to pass by people at waiting at stops because they couldn't put any more people on the bus. Now with COVID restrictions, you take a six, 60 people suddenly becomes 20 or 15. And you can, the system is already over uh, utilized or <laughs> overcrowded. And uh, that's only going to make the situation impossible. The buses aren't even running this summer because of that. So that puts a lot more cars on the road and a lot more people looking for parking places. And um, there are already problems associated with that, as I mentioned, that gridlock thing. So we've got to come up with some new ways of managing large numbers of people if this pandemic continues. Anything to add, Christian? Uh, You know, on one hand, it's nice to see people want to go appreciate the outdoors more. And it's nice to see so many folks, you know, wanting to, you know, get out a little bit during the pandemic and not just be stuck, you know, in their neighborhoods. But at the same time, if this changes our culture as a country and and we are going to have people want to, to be more contained with who they are around on a park visit, then, you know, like you're saying, Kurt, shuttle buses, things like this, these are all considerations the park um, has to take into account, the parks have to take into account when they're deciding on future use. So it's, I think it's really hard to determine right now whether things are going to go back to just high, you know, visitation and the situation like Sheridan was talking about where you have the shuttle buses fill up or if people are going to want more individualized experiences. But, um, but I think that the interesting thing about right now is that the Park Service can take a little bit of a breath um, and maybe even this winter season, take a little bit of a breath and and try to really think about these visitor use patterns and and figure out what makes the most sense to do you know their resource protection work while allowing visitors. But 
the Park Service has not gotten a breath in years to really think about some of these visitor management issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other issue I wanted to touch on before our time is up. At Point Reyes National Seashore, the Park Service earlier this month came out with a decision to extend ranching leases for another 20 years. And in the case of the Drake's Beach Tule Elk Herd, it was decided to cap that population by lethal means if necessary so as not to impact livestock interests. Is that the right decision? I mean, the the Park Service has acknowledged um, in its uh, assessment that the operations, the livestock operations, adversely impact the environment, um, stating that continued grazing would impact watersheds, generate greenhouse gases, and generate dust. Um, Offsetting these impacts, the Park Service said, was the desire to maintain the Point Reyes Peninsula Dairy Ranch's historic district and uh, the Olima Valley Dairy Ranch's historic district cultural landscapes, which both are included on the National Register. What do you think about that decision? I'm deferring to Kristen to start (laughs) that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, of course, it's Point Reyes. Well, you know, here you have a situation where the, the leases for the ranches were extended but the Thule elk need to continue to thrive um, at the park. And they, there's sort of two herds of Thule elk, one that's on Tamales Point, and then there's one that's sort of free roaming. And I think, you know, Point Reyes is a very specific spot on the map. And the Park Service is trying to figure out the best way to uh, accommodate for the ranches that are there and make sure that the Thule elk can still thrive and decisions are made, you know, all the time about making sure that, um, you know, the animals can thrive there. And one thing that, you know, we think that should be a consideration as part of all of this is relocation, if that's even possible. And so, you know, I think there are always sort of these management calls that the park service has to make, um, in order to protect, you know, the population and, uh, you know, and unfortunately, you know, this is one of those issues where there's a development side to it and a resource side to it. And, um, and because the, the ranches are going to continue for a couple more decades, at least, you know, the park service has to sort of have a bunch of options on the table in terms of wildlife management. But I, I think there should be even more options on the table. Sheridan. Well, I, I'm sure that the political pressure was intense on this issue from all directions, but particularly from the Department of Interior today, which is much more um, private enterprise interested than uh, in previous administrations. So um, I'm sure it was a very difficult decision that had to be made. And I would just say that park managers often spend many hours uh, debating what is the right decision in a situation that both protects the natural and cultural resources at the same time allowing for public use, which of course is the mission of the national parks. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it works out. Um, We saw a rare bipartisan moment in Congress this summer with passage of the Great American Outdoors Act and full funding for the Land and Water Conservation Act. The National Parks Action Fund, a subsidiary, if you will, of the National Parks Conservation Association, recently released its congressional scorecard that showed strong support for the parks and the park service. What's your crystal ball tell you? Will Will that support be fleeting, or do you expect the next Congress to build on that support? 
Well, I'm so glad you brought up the Action Fund and <laughs> folks who are listening should go to our website and check out the scorecard. And also, we also compared the presidential candidates to each other and people can take a look at um, the issues. We only uh, compared the issues where there was a direct comparison with the Trump-Pence administration and the Obama-Biden administration. So I would absolutely tell people to take a look at that, but also um, check out our scorecard so you could see how your members of Congress uh, voted on a number of issues. So I'll tell you, I, you know, I am a lobbyist and I go up to Capitol Hill and I talk to members of Congress about parks every day. And the enthusiasm that we saw on the Hill this past year or so to move this bill, it was it was it was very thrilling as someone who loves our national parks to actually see folks who are opposed on so many other issues actually join together on on funding uh, for deferred maintenance and funding for land acquisition. And even previous to that, in 2019, uh, Congress rallied around the Dingle Act, which added more parks to the system, more wilderness to Utah and other places. And so, and also the mining withdrawal for uh, the area outside of Yellowstone National Park. And so there's definite momentum, Kurt, on parks right now in Congress and the idea of more conservation and the idea of more protection. And so I think we need to, as park <coughs> advocates, really keep keep on Congress about all of these issues and make sure that we are talking to them about supporting, you know, conservation. I think what you'll notice from the scorecard that is pretty distinct is on the Senate side, where people, where senators tended to be different on park support was on the nominations for David Bernhardt for Interior Secretary and Andrew Wheeler for EPA Administrator. And that's where you see a difference um, between how people voted. And unfortunately, when you have these nominees you know, David Bernhardt is a former mining lobbyist and uh, Wheeler is also more of a private industry person. And when you see senators voting for these folks, these people change management of the parks constantly. And with Wheeler, it's an issue of diminishing science and um, climate change, um, uh, you know, putting more pressure on reducing carbon emissions uh, to reduce the climate impact in parks. So on the Senate side, take a look at those folks who supported those nominees who are not great for parks. And on the House side, there were quite a few votes on oil and gas development near national parks, whether it's Chaco Cultural in New Mexico or the coastal parks. Check out those votes and also the vote on the Grand Canyon uranium mining withdrawal. Those are absolute park votes that really shows whether or not folks are willing to go to bat for our national parks and make sure they're protected in perpetuity. So, um, so we're excited about the scorecard. We think folks should, you know, take a close look and, and see, um, see how their uh, members voted on these issues. You know, I would say that the, uh, one of the great things about the national parks is the tremendous support by the American citizens uh, for the national park system. And it's terrific to have partner organizations like NPCA and National Park Traveler and all the other partners, if you will, who are supporting the national parks and are working hard to see them protected and enjoyed uh, now and in the future. I guess when the 
new Congress shows up next year, we'll, we'll find out how, how deep that support is. If you're looking well, for I that. Think, I, go I, ahead. I think, um, you know, part of this is that there isn't always a ton of turnover in Congress. And so it's really important that folks look at how their members of Congress voted on issues like uranium mining and oil and gas drilling. And even if that member voted the wrong way on those issues, go talk to them and understand why they voted that way so that we can turn their vote into the right vote next time around. And that's one of the reasons why on our website on nationalparksaction.org, we're tracked, we're tracking how they're voting year to year. So you, you can actually see on our website the lifetime score of a member of Congress to see if they change their vote over time. And so it's really important that we show the members that voting for parks is popular. It's something they should do. It's something their constituents watch and give them the opening to switch their votes over later on down the road if um, these issues keep coming up before Congress. Yeah, that is a great resource that uh, this being an election system you season, you definitely should check out. Well, Kristen, Sheridan, I'm afraid that's all the time we have, although I've got more questions left on my, my sheets here. Um, we'll have to take it up at another time, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks thank so you, much, Kurt. Kurt. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it and hope you enjoy the various voices, stories, and news we bring you every week from around the National Park System. You can help us expand these shows with a donation. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that relies greatly on its listeners and readers to bring you editorial content from the parks every day of the year. You can find a donate button in the menu bar at nationalparkstraveler.org. For the Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can find out more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.